Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Adrian Buller, author of The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism, published this year by Manchester University Press. Dr. Buller, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure, yeah. So I am currently um, a senior fellow at an organization in the UK called Commonwealth, with a space in the middle, a bit of a silly play on words, but uh, we're a think tank basically that focuses on democratic ownership and sort of work that would be oriented toward a more sustainable and democratic economic model. Um, And I came to that from a few years of work um, in the sort of sustainable finance uh, space, which is a focus of a lot of what's in the book, um, and sort of coming away from that space, being a bit disillusioned, um, which sort of prompted me to uh, sort of cast a more critical eye through this book on what I saw as sort of a, an industry and a sort of approach to climate and ecological crisis that uh, wasn't sort of delivering on what it said it was. <laughs> So let's start with kind of the obvious question. What is a whale worth and why is anyone calculating this? <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, so according to a team of researchers at the IMF or the International Monetary Fund, uh, each great whale is worth about two million US dollars. Uh, and they base that calculation off of a combination of things like carbon sequestration over its lifetime Um ecotourism services so you know the amount that people will spend in local economies to go see whales on whale watching trips and a couple of other factors like that and they arrived at this kind of magical two million per whale uh value um and i guess you know it's a very good question as to why people are doing this kind of calculation um interestingly you know although it's a kind of sensational example, it's actually not that unusual. Um, People have done a similar kind of calculation for elephants, for example, saying, you know, they're each worth about 1.75 million um, based on, you know, the benefits they create for forests and other local economies. Um, But this kind of calculation has been around, I mean, since the late 90s, really, when there's a kind of very famous paper published in Nature um, by Costanza et al., um, which looks at what they call ecosystem services and natural capital, which basically is, I mean, natural capital is quite descriptive. So it's like the value of assets in nature. um, And ecosystem services are those things like clean water and clean air um, that ecosystems provide to society. And they arrived at, you know, the value of all of that for the entire world um, being about $33 trillion per year, which is about, you know, double what GDP was at the time. Um, And so there's been all sorts of these kinds of numbers floating around over the decades. um, And they basically... You know, the question of why is the fundamental question of this book, I guess. And there's two ways that you could go about answering that. Um, The first is, you know, what is the fundamental logic that underlies putting a price on something like an ecosystem service or an animal or anything of that nature, carbon even? Um, 
And it's basically that, you know, within mainstream and market-led economics, as I describe it in the book, which basically is at the forefront of the way that most policymakers are thinking about the climate crisis, is that, you know, markets are meant to be this inherently rational kind of system that produces optimal, efficient outcomes in terms of the way that we address problems and the way that we use resources to do so. Um, So we kind of have this default setting when we're looking at something like the climate crisis or ecological collapse, which is that, you know, the best way to do it is uh, through the market. And so in order to do that through the market, we need to find a way to bring all of these things which are currently external to the market. So like species or ecosystems or carbon, and by putting a price on them, uh, bring them into the market. Um, I mean, the problem with that is that, you know, you quickly run into all kinds of problems, which we can maybe unpack as we go along, you know, problems of measurement, practical implementation, you know, political problems. Um And that takes you to the kind of second interpretation of the why do this question, which is, you know, what actually justifies this approach? Um, And again, it comes back to, you know, just this kind of inherent primacy of market mechanisms in the way that we've approached these problems. Um, You know, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, there's still this idea that the market is, you know, the optimal realm for solving all problems rather than, you know, being pretty good at some and bad at others. Um, And so I think, you know, there's a really open question that the book asks, which is, you know, what is the actual justification for that approach? Can it be justified in the context of these sort of systemic existential crises? Um, And I would argue probably not to anyone who reads the book. (laughs) Yeah. So I kind of want to follow up on that. Uh, You know, you're, you're saying that this common thing that we hear that, you know, well, things like climate change, it's a market failure. And so therefore we need to like get the prices right and internalize the externalities and then the market will fix things. And I think one of the things you're trying to do in the book is to show that that doesn't actually work, that uh, there's, there's all kinds of problems when you attempt to try to make all this go under that framework of the the market. So can you talk a little bit more about what goes wrong when we try to, you know, internalize the externalities and uh, treat everything through this, this market-based approach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there are a lot of kind of ways that you can look at that question. Um, you know, I'll start with the simplest really, which is when it comes to things like carbon or ecosystem services, you know, these are parts of incredibly complex systems. So you very quickly end up with immediate practical problems, practical limitations uh, on how you would actually kind of measure this. Um, Very few people can agree. So the carbon price is a really good example of this. You know, the estimates vary wildly. Um, You know, some famous estimates. um, So William Nordhaus, who's quite a famous sort of climate economist, controversial figure for some, um, has sort of an ideal pathway for a three degrees of warming type future. Um, Lots to unpack there, but um, he would put to achieve that um, a carbon price of about $40 per ton. Um, And then he says, you know, increasing over time, but a two degree future would be closer to 200. Some estimates, you know, put a 1.5 degree pathway closer to, you know, $14,000 per ton. And so you can see how wildly these vary. And at the end of 2020, as per the IMF, the actual global price stood at about $2. So we're not even, you know, anywhere near the kind of 
lowest estimates of where it needs to be. And a lot of that is because, you know, the practical limitations of understanding how to arrive at prices, um, the complexities of, you know, states creating markets for carbon. Um, you know, the EU emissions trading scheme is a great example. It only covers certain industries, and that's because it's hugely politically fraught. Um, you know, there's all sorts of allowances and credits that have sort of made it less effective than it could be. And so these prices are meant to be like quite simple, and you just internalize it to the market and problem solved, but you don't evade very tricky practical questions as well as the political ones. Um, but there's, you know, there's other questions as well that I think are a bit more like fundamental, which is that um, the the market based system um, is fundamentally reliant on the idea of efficiency. And again, I'll quote Nordhaus. I don't mean to pick him out so much, but he's got lots of great quotes to reference. And, you know, he describes efficiency as the staple diet of economists. You know, they eat it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And what he means in that um, statement is that, you know, efficiency is the most cost effective way, the most efficient way to you know, reduce uh, carbon emissions or to resolve various problems. Um, and that is the logic that like fundamentally justifies using a market-based approach. Um, you see this in all types of papers uh, that policymakers or academics publish in favor of carbon pricing. Everyone loves to talk about its simplicity and its efficiency. But when it comes to something like the climate crisis or biodiversity, um, for me, that leaves a really unanswered question, which is why should we be prioritizing efficiency in the first place? I think, you know, for some challenges in some areas of the economy, maybe that's, you know, a great outcome. Maybe that should be prioritized. But when you're facing, you know, a non-trivial catastrophic threat, <laughs> it seems to me that making efficiency your priority requires a lot of justification. Um, and for me, instead, we should be focusing uh, on things that are almost inimical to a market-based approach, which is like prioritizing effective planning, throwing everything we can at the problem and being okay with the fact that some of those things might not work and might not be that cost effective, but, you know, we're confronting a genuinely existential threat. And so being comfortable with the idea that, you know, there can be state-led investment or, you know, other forms of planning and that not everything needs to be left to the market, I think is very valid. And there's a really excellent um, piece that I would recommend uh, to listeners by an academic called Cedric Durand, um, D-U-R-A-N-D. Um, I reference it in the book, but it's published on the New Left Review sidecar page, which is free to access. Um, and he talks about this um issue really lucidly, and I highly recommend that paper. Um, and the final point, and you know, my biggest issue with the market-based mechanism for these kinds of um, incredibly complex challenges is that it inherently sort of leaves out the question of justice and the sort of distributional questions related to these crises. Um, and to break that down, you know, some forms of carbon are right now, because we have a fossil fueled <laughs> infrastructure and system, um, absolutely vital to support people's basic needs. Um, but similarly, there are other forms of carbon emissions or sources for carbon emissions that, you know, are totally unnecessary for human thriving, for happiness, and are related to, you know, elite consumption, etc. Um, many of whom could afford to keep paying a carbon price to continue um, those kinds of high emitting luxury lifestyles. Um, but a universal carbon price doesn't really discriminate by definition, you know, it's a universal price on carbon. Um, and so it doesn't really care whether you are 
elite consumer or whether you are someone who like fundamentally needs to heat their home. People have tried to devise mechanisms to assuage that, like a carbon tax and dividend, but even these have come up against huge problems related to politics, related to the sequencing um, of how you sort of refund those payments. Um, but ultimately, you know, it doesn't get around the idea that this is a question related to, you know, distributions of wealth and consumption. Um, and it also doesn't get away from the fact that capitalism and market-based systems are basically an externalizing machine, um, which again just means that, you know, the very nature of being a profit-motivated system means that um, capitalism is incredibly good at finding ways to create new external ex- new externalities, rather, um, constantly finding ways to reduce costs. And again, the carbon price is a great example for this of, you know, these unintended or otherwise consequences where the creation of uh, carbon markets has created this huge demand for carbon offsets, um, which uh, can be anything from sort of reforestation projects to other kinds of you know, mitigation projects. Um, and a lot of the time, these have had hugely devastating consequences, um, for example, through land grabs in the global south, through the disruption of you know traditional farming practices for these mass kind of uh, offset plantations. And so those are kinds of new damages and externalities that um, are produced when you have a very sort of uh, sort of solely focused on carbon style market-based mechanism and approach to solving these problems. And that's not sort of a bug of the system. It's a feature, again, which comes down to the fact that, you know, by definition, it's looking to find the most profitable way to do things and the most cost-effective way to do things. And often, when it comes to these crises, those two priorities are just incompatible with what actually needs to be done. Okay. So at the the center of your analysis is uh, asset management companies like Vanguard and, and BlackRock. So can you tell us what do these companies do and why does that matter for environmental uh, crisis? Yeah, so asset management firms are maybe a bit of a passion of mine, and that's perhaps a bit of a quirk of the book. They might be surprising for people to find in a book about green capitalism rather than, for example, the fossil fuel giants. Um, But I focus on them in a chapter or two of the book because I think they um, are sort of an overlooked industry that is massively growing in scale, but also in influence specifically over the way that policymakers conceive of and and respond to the climate and nature crises. Um, So in the very basic sense, asset managers um, do exactly what their name suggests. Uh, They manage assets. So if you have a pension, if you have pension assets, then chances are your uh, pension pension fund relies on an asset manager like BlackRock or Vanguard to invest those assets. Um, And, you know, there's thousands of them around the world, but the majority uh, are based in the US and the UK. And there's sort of a handful of incredibly powerful top firms that include uh, BlackRock and Vanguard. Um, And it's it's an incredibly concentrated industry. So the entire global industry of asset management represents about $100 trillion in assets. Um, But the top 
three managers alone, so BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, uh, together control about $20 trillion in assets. So that's, you know, a full fifth of the global system, which is under the control of just three firms. Um, they're also, you know, universally exposed, meaning that they have investments across the entire economy, across every asset class, often with pretty significant stakes. So together, they're owning, you know, between 10 and 20 percent of any given S&P 500 company. So that's all the big guys from Exxon to Facebook to Amazon. Um, and that gives them a huge amount of power um, in the companies themselves. Absolutely. Um, but it's also started to be uh, a huge amount of power directly over um policy and uh, the way that we are conceiving of responding to these challenges. Um, and so Larry Fink, for example, he's the uh, CEO of BlackRock. Um, sorry, can you hear that immense thunder sound? Is that distracting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. Okay, I'll start again. Um, so Larry Fink, he's the CEO of BlackRock, and he's often been semi-jokingly, semi-seriously accused of creating a sort of shadow government um, through which he's kind of funneled um, policymakers and powerful people from the BlackRock company to influence U.S. policy. Um, and I don't want to get too conspiratorial at all, but you can see, you know, several former um, BlackRock executives having prominent positions in the Biden administration. You know, they were also invited to advise on the European Union's sustainable finance regulations. Um, and, you know, BlackRock was given for example, um, the task of conducting the Federal Reserve's asset purchase program uh, in response to COVID-19, through which they bought up, you know, a ton of their own funds, just conveniently. Um, and so, you know, they've been dubbed by groups, including, you know, Bloomberg, hardly a sort of radical press outlet, but uh, even they have sort of criticized their role as an increasingly kind of like fourth branch of government. Um, and so I think, in particular, when it comes to the climate crisis, they have quite a vested interest in how we resolve that problem um, because they are universally exposed in terms of what they own and what they invest in. Um, they're universally exposed to the climate and nature crises, and that makes them acutely interested in the way that we address and resolve them. Um, and so they're important to me in that respect. Um, and in the book, I talk about... Um, this kind of framework developed by a German academic called Dr. Benjamin Brown um, called uh, Asset Manager Capitalism, um, which he defines as sort of a new logic of corporate and economic kind of governance, um, which is related to the fact that these big asset management firms, you know, they are absolutely huge. There's massive concentration in the industry. Um, they have ownership across the whole global economy. These tend to be sort of strong positions. Um, meaning that they have, you know, sway over the companies in which they're invested. Um, and they operate on a fee-based model, which means that the bigger the size of their asset pool, then the more money they make. And the combination of those, these, of those things, he argues, means that, you know, they are singularly interested in uh, growing the aggregate size of their assets under management. Um, and that might seem kind of fine in and of itself, um, but the ways that that has been intersecting with climate and ecological policy is quite interesting. Um, and for me, concerning, I guess, because, you know, they're interested in a world that ensures 
first and foremost, that asset prices stay high, that they continue to have new sources of assets in which they can invest. Um, and a big part of that is seen in what another academic, sort of keep referencing, but I want to make sure I get everyone's names in, um, another academic called Daniela Gabor, who's articulated this framework called the Wall Street Consensus. Um, and this is basically a summary of the way that you can see finances imprints on policymaking. Um, and the Green Deal is a really good example of this, uh, the European Union sort of flagship climate program, which is, you know, rather than the state doing direct public investment or, you know, direct investments in communities or the state kind of planning the way these things will happen um, to invest in decarbonization, to have those assets itself. Um, a lot of the deal says, you know, we will use the power of the state to uh, remove the risk of these investments for private investors so that they can come in relatively risk-free, you know, we'll guarantee the loans, we'll guarantee, you know, various levels of return um, and you can make those returns. But, you know, in the case something goes wrong, then we will eat up, you know, the losses there. Um, and that's, you know, a big influence on the global climate agenda. Now you can see its fingerprints kind of everywhere. And it's all about, you know, keeping these investments off the public balance sheet, making sure that there's new assets in this transition to a decarbonized economy that are investable by the private sector from which they can make a profit. Um, and I just think that that is, um, it's not that I'm, you know, inherently, anti-profit that's a conversation for a different different podcast maybe but even if you are sort of pro business um the outcome of having a private sector-led transition to a challenge this complex um is i think problematic and you know there are lots of minute examples of that for example in the delivery of you know infrastructure in the first place. So the electrification of uh, the US or the UK or, you know, the rollout of broadband has always had to be like in the end state delivered or at least with public planning and investment and capacity, um, because there simply comes a point where it's not profitable enough for the private sector to deliver things that um, will serve, you know, the hardest hit communities, the most underserved communities. Um, and that goes for the climate crisis as well. You know, we want to make sure that we're not just investing in the most profitable initiatives, but ensuring that we're actually solving the problem and doing so in a way that's fair. So I think the turn towards a policy agenda that's like very shaped by the logic of the investment system um, is, is of concern for me. And then the last point that I'll say, and I realize I've gone on quite long here, is that um, they also are sort of fundamentally changing the nature of investment and capital allocation in the global economy. Um, and a lot of that comes down to um, their role as what's called passive investors. Um, so what this means is that rather than, you know, we think of investors in the kind of like Wolf of Wall Street style sense where, you know, they're frantically calling people and picking companies and buying stocks and all that. Um, whereas today's biggest asset managers, particularly BlackRock and Vanguard, are primarily passive, which means that the funds that they sell to people um, decide what they're investing in based on an index. Um, so a list of securities that they should buy, how much of each they should by that are often um, created by third-party providers. So MSCI, S&P Dow, jo Dow Jones, these are names that might be familiar uh, to some listeners. Most people, I guess, know the S&P. Um, and so these firms are now sort of telling investors often, you know, what they should be purchasing, how much of each, and that fundamentally changes the way that capital is allocated, uh, fundamentally changes, you know, who is making these investment decisions. You know, we've now got three uh 
index providing firms that absolutely dominate and that are quite opaque, um, even compared to the asset managers themselves. Um, and that has real world consequences, not just for the corporate economy. You know, a lot of index funds can be market making and sort of prioritize incumbent firms. Um, they can have sort of a self-perpetuating sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in the way that they drive up the valuations of larger firms. Um, but they also are increasingly critical to uh, the sovereign bond markets, and in particular to uh, the ability for the poorest countries to access uh, investment. So because of you know, the relatively unjust structure of the global economy, a lot of poor nations have to access public financing through uh, sovereign bond markets, and private investors are a big part of that, buying up those securities, which are higher risk and often higher return. Um, but very recent research, and some of which is cited in the book, um, shows that you know passive investing has created this incredible sort of new threshold um, that is often make or break for countries' ability to get um, finance, often to meet sort of like very critical basic needs. And so whether you know MSCI designates you part of uh, an index can be truly life or death for inhabitants of many of these countries. And um, there's also very new research that shows that, you know, passive investment funds are the most likely to withdraw and to withdraw the quickest uh, from these countries' uh, debt in times of crisis, which, you know, immediately pushes up their cost of borrowing, can create spirals of indebtedness, you know, incredible suffering in the near term, and then in the long term risk, you know, totally compromising uh, any efforts they might be taking to not only mitigate, but adapt to the climate and nature crises. Um, and so basically, we just have this massive sort of transfer of power to a new sort of system of investment that I think is, you know, poorly understood uh, and and not often scrutinized. And so they, for those reasons, form quite a big focus uh, of the book. Yeah. And it, it kind of reinforces that point that you're making that, you know, as these investors are making their decisions, even when they're they're deciding how to invest based on what's going to kind of reduce the, the financial risk to them from climate change, that's not really the same as making investments in actually dealing with climate change and, and helping all of the people that are going to be affected by climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you raised that point because it comes back to another reason I'm concerned with asset managers' role in addressing the climate crisis. And that is um, this sort of massive boom in the idea of like sustainable investing or ESG. And I'm sure most of us have had, you know, ESG funds or pensions advertised to us. And um, you know, it's also a huge component of the way that governments and international institutions are thinking about um, the private investment sector's role in uh, addressing these crises. You know, COP26, the climate conference in Glasgow, had a whole very kind of fanfare-filled day dedicated to um, private investment. Um, you know, the UK government's flagship you know, one of their flagship climate kind of proposals is like green finance strategy, all these things. And it comes down to this idea that we can rely on the private investment industry's uh, self-interest from, you know, the risks posed to it by the climate crisis. Um, and by risks, I mean, you know, risks to asset values, basically, and risks to returns. Um, and we can rely on that self-interest to drive a total greening of the financial system and through that process, a greening of the economy more broadly. Um, and this is, you know, very pervasive, um, both at the policymaking level, but also at, you know, 
know, the individual mindset, um, not to be too anecdotal, but, you know, many of my family members have approached me to say, you know, should I switch my, you know, my retirement savings into an ESG fund? And this idea that you can do well by doing good has proven to be, you know, incredibly popular with uh, millennials who are, you know, really deciding this is how they want to make a difference in the world. And I think that that is a really dangerous distraction um, from not only, you know, demanding and advocating actual sort of shifts in the way that we um, distribute money in the global economy, the way that we invest, what we're allowed to invest in, what's incentivized. Um, and it, you know, it gives this facade that something is really happening when it isn't. And the reason that it's not really shifting or making, you know, huge shifts when you're doing something like investing in an ESG fund, which one of us might do, is that, you know, there's a difference between, uh, in, you know, investing and investment. And that sounds quite pedantic. Um, but investing is really, I'm going to take my money and try to get a return. Whereas investment in the sense I'm describing means, you know, I am providing money to a firm that's going to affect its behavior. It's going to affect what it does. So my purchase of a share in Tesla means that, you know, it's going to do X, Y, Z. When the reality is that the vast majority of ESG investing is really just, you know, shares and other securities trading hands between um, investors on secondary markets and has little bearing on the actual kind of investment that reaches a company because most stock markets are, again, really about trades between investors. Um, and that absolutely dwarfs the amount of activity that is um, actual new share issuance, which is when you know capital is actually injected into a company. Um, so I think it's this kind of fundamental myth that by buying up these kinds of shares, you're really driving a change in the economy. And again, often what's available to people through sustainable investing is, you know, very large, very incumbent, uh, you know, S&P 500 type companies, as opposed to a lot of the smaller kind of upstarts that might be the ones, you know, providing renewable energy services or other kinds of innovations. Um, that in and of itself is another problem. Um, and I think, you know, fundamentally, it just comes down to this idea, this sort of conflation of risks to finance and to returns versus, you know, risks to uh, human well-being, risks to the climate. Um, and in policymaking and in public discourse, a lot of the time, uh, those are conflated. And I think that's sort of a very dangerous conflation to have be as pervasive as it is. Yeah, and you kind of you illustrate this disconnect between what's going on in the stock market and what's happening in kind of what we might think of as like the real economy. Uh, a few different times you bring up GameStop, um, and specifically, you know, back in in twenty twenty, there was this campaign on on Reddit to drive up their their stock price. Uh, so, can you talk about how that kind of illustrates what's wrong with the current state of capitalism? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Again, think GameStop might be something that people don't necessarily expect in a book uh, about whales. Um, but basically, GameStop, I think, was such a, a really useful um, kind of teachable moment on the way uh, the stock market functions and, you know, what it really serves to do. Um, so as you as you described, you know, a bunch of sort of Reddit vigilantes, if you will, decided that together they could uh, drive up the price of GameStop, which was um, a firm that was kind of like flagging because it was a sort of real uh, physical storefront based shop. Uh, and during the pandemic, uh, a number of hedge funds decided that they would short the GameStop stock, which effectively means they would um, bet against it. 
meaning they expected the price to go down uh, and then they could, you know, through various kind of mechanisms, make uh, money back from that bet. Um, and so seeing that uh, a bunch of the people on Reddit thought they would get together to drive up the share price and in doing so potentially, you know, bankrupt these kind of vulture-y head funds, hedge funds rather. Um, and I thought it was hugely illustrative of both, you know, the total irrationality of the way that, you know, stock trading actually works. Um, you know, it's it completely represents the way that the, a share price, which we often think of as, you know, a high share price means this is a great company, you know, that can and, you know, often, if not most of the time is completely divorced from, you know, what's actually happening in the company itself. All you need to do is look at Uber, which is, you know, still never turned a profit and yet has, you know, huge interest for investors to understand the kind of way that these valuations can be totally divorced from the companies themselves. But then the more interesting bit, I think, is that um, it comes down again to a question of power. Um, so, there was a lot of celebration of the way in which, uh, you know, these vigilantes kind of were taking on, you know, it's a David and Goliath story, you know, they're taking on the hedge funds. Um, but ultimately, you know, Robinhood, which is the platform on which they were trading in response to, you know, pressure, uh, froze all trading to prevent this from happening. You know, ultimately, the hedge funds kind of got their way to protect some of themselves. And it, you know, it, it just reflects the sense in which the stock market isn't this kind of like democratic ideal in which share prices reflect the best available information that we have and markets are allocating efficiently. And this is, you know, a really valuable tool for companies to raise, raise funds for public investment. I think it really just exposed it as basically broadly a casino uh, in which, you know, people are just trading claims on the profits of firms, um, trading claims on shareholder payouts and, you know, betting on the likelihood of future scenarios, as opposed to really doing something all that productive. Um, and I think, you know, that was a useful and illustrative, illustrative example for me when it came to sustainable finance, which is really just that, you know, the stock market isn't about building a better world. It's really about people, you know, speculating in a casino and, and, you know, making some quick money off of it. Um, and so relying on that as sort of a, a tool for our salvation in the climate and nature crises, while that may sound extreme, um, is, yeah, is fundamentally kind of, kind of irrational, um, and something that should be avoided. <laughs> Okay, so changing gears a little bit, uh, sort of underlying a lot of your critique of green capitalism is the idea that all of these different strategies serve to take things that are really political decisions and disguise them as being apolitical, technical, pragmatic kind of numbers. So can you elaborate a bit on that and about the importance of, of politics? Yeah, so again, there's this, I think there's this sort of idea that market-based mechanisms um, are sort of avoid the messiness of doing actual politics. Um, so by finding ways for things to be conveyed uh, through prices, then you're sort of transferring the thorny question of, you know, what do we do about our entirely fossil fuel dominated 
uh, system of infrastructure? What do you do about, you know, people who can't afford to heat their homes? What do we do about, you know, deforestation? All of these really complicated questions and just kind of shift it to the comparatively apolitical domain of the market. And I use sort of scare quotes there um, to let market actors uh, decide. Um, But, you know, the problem is that for me, you know, the market is a fundamentally sort of um, undemocratic space. uh, And that sort of goes against, I guess, conventional um, pro free market logic. So um, Ludwig von Mises, for example, uh, who's a very prominent kind of free market thinker, um, describes the market as, you know, the ultimate exercise in democracy, because, you know, one penny gives you one vote, and then that expresses in aggregate, you know, what people value and what people want. Um, And I think that kind of idea holds as well in terms of, you know, our addiction to market-based solutions to these problems, which is that, you know, the outcome of that reflects the public will. And, you know, we've gotten around the thorniness of, you know, going through Congress and like the sort of grotesque messiness of politics and the market has resolved it by responding to the whims of rational actors. But I think any of us who, you know, live in a society (laughs) can understand that that is really not how markets work. You know, there's huge disparities in power. um, There's huge disparities in in wealth and consequentially, you know, who has an influence there. Um, They're not rational. uh, And I think, you know, they end up just transferring as a result what to me should be a fundamentally sort of democratically decided question, which is, you know, this society is environmentally and ecologically unsustainable. What kind of alternative are we going to build? Uh, And transfers it over to a system which says, you know, what are the most profitable ways that we can respond to this problem? Um, And again, I've, you know, said this before, but you know, the idea that we can solve it through prices that internalize these things to the market uh, sort of just ignores the questions of the very challenging and inherently political questions of, you know, justice in this space, which is, you know, as many of us will have heard a lot of times, you know, the people who are on the front lines of the impacts of climate and ecological crisis, you know, have overwhelmingly done very little to contribute to it. And the inverse is also true, you know, the comparatively wealthy who have done much more to drive these crises are also, you know, likely to be comparatively safe in the face of its impacts. Um, You know, there are huge disparities in global consumption and global emissions. Um, And I think those really, really matter. Um, It's a much less politically popular question to think about distributions of wealth and consumption. But I think it's sort of physically uh, and ecologically necessary, in addition to being uh, important from the perspective of justice. You know, if any of us profess to have, you know, this kind of cosmopolitan concern for the people and the poor of the world, and maybe some people don't, I'm not among them, um, then this is something that we that we have to grapple with. And that's something that the market fundamentally uh, is just, you know, not interested in doing, let alone often, you know, designed to ignore, to go back to, you know, what we talked about before in terms of creating all sorts of new externalities, um, even if you were to, you know, internalize carbon, for example, to the market. Yeah, and so then I think that kind of naturally leads into the the question that, you know, if we can't beat climate change with green investing and carbon markets and so forth, you know, what what can we do? What is the the alternative to green capitalism? 
<laughs> very good, very big question. Um, and I think, you know, in the book, I explicitly say, and this is probably dissatisfying in some ways, that I don't, nor should I really have all the answers to that question. I think my primary goal with um, the value of a whale is just to say that, you know, we're in this phase where we're pursuing sort of headlong all of these approaches um, to this crisis that are, you know, at best a distraction from the real problem and at worst, you know, actively contributing to new problems or just, you know, not not at all addressing uh, the underlying issues and the crises that we're facing. Um, so that's sort of goal number one of the book is, you know, to have a fundamental rethink of the sort of mainstream ways that this is currently being approached. And I should say, you know, the mainstream ways it's being approached, where it's being approached at all. You know, <laughs> a lot of the time vested interests are such that this is still in very early stages, but we'll set that aside for now. I think um, what I try to do with the book is just kind of a provocation to readers to think about, you know, this is ultimately going to come down to a question of, you know, what is it that we really value in society? Um, I'm of the perspective that this will require some uncomfortable questions about the way that we produce, the way that we consume, the fact that, you know, even if you're relatively lower middle class in somewhere like the US or Canada, um, you're part of the world's kind of globally affluent and you have a massively outsized contribution to this problem, what does that mean for your life and for the way uh, that it may or may not need to change in the context of these crises? Um, And I think there are a lot of people who are coming up with really interesting and totally varied answers for what that might look like. Um, And so while I don't have or nor do I want to offer sort of a final Uh, sort of silver bullet solution, because I think fundamentally, this is going to be a question of messy democratic politics, which we're not currently doing. Um, I think, you know, there are some really interesting suggestions out there from scholars in the degrowth community. Um, People will definitely be familiar with sort of Green New Deal type frameworks, which, you know, envision rather than markets and price signals, a lot of sort of public led investment in infrastructure and uh, sort of reparative justice programs. Um, There's really interesting sort of provocative new book um, called Half Earth Socialism, which focuses a lot on (laughs) changes in land use. um, And uh, that's, you know, an interesting resource for interested listeners. Um, But one of the most interesting questions for me, again, is, you know, escaping this idea that everything we value needs to be something that is profitable or can have a price attached to it, which is, you know, shockingly pervasive, even in our own lives, I find myself falling into that framework all the time. And so just sort of challenging us to consider, you know, this is going to be a society disrupting challenge. Um, What do we actually want if we were to start from carte blanche, you know, that future to look like? What do we actually care about? What do we value? Um, What makes us happy? What, you know, can we prioritize in terms of personal freedoms versus collective freedoms, you know, making sure that my freedom to own a Tesla isn't infringing on the freedom of someone in, you know, the Atacama Valley to, you know, exist and have access to water. And so re sort of re-challenging these assumptions. Um, And there's a really good guide to that, an interesting book by Kate Soper um, on an alternative hedonism. It's called Post-Growth Living. Um, And there are lots of resources like that out there that I would encourage listeners to engage with. Um, But yeah, I guess fundamentally for me, it comes down to 
completely reappraising, you know, what as a society uh, we value and what we cherish and what we keep as we move to what is going to be, I think, a radically different future. Okay. And just to kind of clarify your Atacama reference there for any listeners that didn't pick up on that, that's because to build an electric car, you need lithium. And there's only a few places in the world where they're mining lithium. And uh, South America is one of the big uh, the big sources. And that raises other environmental and social justice issues when you go to mine uh, these kind of materials that we would need for this sort of mass electrification and decarbonization. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so as we're moving towards the the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Oh, God, there were so many people who were, you know, hugely valuable to this. I'd like to thank basically the whole team at Commonwealth, um, to my sister for relentlessly editing. um, And then I think for the kind of intellectual um, guidance, whether they're aware of it or not, of uh, many of the people whose names I mentioned. So um, Ben Brown, Daniela Gabor, um, Jason Moore, whose name I may not have mentioned, but his big influence. Um, and uh, yeah, and to everyone who reviewed chapters for me, thank you for taking the time. <laughs> All right. And so to close out, we always like to ask, what are you working on next? What's your your next big project that you're taking on now that this book is out? Um, Well, first I'm going to uh, sleep a little bit, uh, but then I have uh, actually another book that is co-written with the director of Commonwealth, where I work, um, coming out this fall, um, which you can look forward to. It's called Owning the Future, uh, and it's out with Verso, and it's on sort of property relations and ownership, which is our bread and butter at Commonwealth. And then, yeah, I'll be looking forward to taking on the question of asset management and and ownership and the ways that it intersects with the climate crisis at Commonwealth. Um, So you can follow our work. I can share a link maybe with the episode because we are fundamentally ungoogleable as an organization because of our name <laughs> sure yeah if you, if you give me that link i'll i'll add that to the episode description okay well thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for having me it was great you just heard a conversation with adrian buller author of the value of a whale on the illusions of green capitalism published this year by manchester university press